You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of a collection of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled Death as Metamorphosis of Life. This is Lecture 2, entitled Death as Metamorphosis of Life, given in Nuremberg, February 10th, 1918. In our reflections on spiritual science, we come across much we apparently cannot directly apply in our daily life, much that is seemingly far removed from our everyday life. In reality, however, what we learn about the mysteries of the spiritual world is always in every hour and every moment deeply significant for our soul. What seems to us far removed from our personal concerns is at times very close to what our soul in its innermost core needs. As far as the physical sensory world is concerned, it's important that we become familiar with it and know what it contains. Where the spiritual world is concerned, what matters primarily is to think through carefully for ourselves all the thoughts and imaginations that this world offers us. When we do this, these thoughts work in our soul, often without our being conscious of it. What our soul is working on in this process may seem to be irrelevant for us, but in reality it can be very important and exactly what is needed for the higher spheres of our soul. So today, let us reflect on what we have talked about before from various perspectives and let's look at it from yet another angle. That is, we will talk about what seems so far removed from our physical life, namely the life between death and rebirth. In particular, now that we've prepared ourselves to understand these matters in the right way, I would like to tell you in plain and simple terms about some things as they are revealed in spiritual science. We can understand these things if we think them through again and again. They make themselves clear to our soul by themselves. If we do not understand them, we can be sure that it is because we have not yet thought them through often enough. To explore these issues, we need spiritual science. But to understand them, we have to repeatedly sift through them in our soul. And in this process, they will draw strength from the events life brings to us. In fact, if we look more closely at life, we will see how those thoughts are solidified by what happens in our life. First, I would like to say again what is also clear from many of our other lectures and treatises, namely that one of the difficulties in talking about life between death and rebirth is that life after death is completely and absolutely different from what we can imagine here based on our physical organs. Thus, to learn about life after death we have to become familiar with very, very different concepts and ideas 
than what we are used to. For example, in dealing with the physical world, we know that for only very few of the beings around us can we say that as we carry out our will we cause them pleasure or pain. This is true for the animal and human kingdom here in our physical world. In contrast, we are fully convinced that the mineral realm, including everything in the air and in water, and also for the most part the plant kingdom, are insensible to what we call pleasure and pain in response to our actions. True, this is not how things are when seen from a spiritual perspective, but we can disregard that for now. Based on the physical world's perspective, our conviction that minerals and plants do not feel seems justified. The world in which the so-called dead find themselves is very different in this regard, and there everything the dead do causes either pleasure or suffering. The dead cannot do anything, not even lift a finger, without giving pleasure or pain to everything around them. We must thoroughly understand this and immerse ourselves in the realization that in the life between death and rebirth everything prompts an echo. In that realm we cannot do anything without eliciting a response of pleasure or pain from everything around us. In the life after death there is nothing corresponding to the mineral or plant kingdoms as we know them here. Rather, as you know from my book titled Theosophy, these kingdoms exist in a very different form in the realm of the dead. In the spiritual world they are no longer insensate. The first earthly kingdom that is significant, because it can be compared with what the dead encounter in their world, is that of the animals. Not the individual animals as we know them, but the realm of the dead works much like the animal kingdom does here. The whole environment of the dead responds with pleasure or pain to everything the dead are doing. While here on earth the mineral kingdom serves as the foundation on which we stand, an environment we can call quote-unquote animal-like provides such a foundation for the dead. This means that from the outset the dead are living two planes higher than we do. Life between death and rebirth consists primarily of getting to know this animal kingdom, but not in the way we come to know the realms of animals here. On earth we know animals really only from the outside, but after death we come to know the world of animals as such ever more deeply and intimately. This is important because in the time between death and rebirth we must prepare all those forces emanating from the cosmos that structure our body. During our life here on earth we know nothing of these forces and their work, but after death we find out how the cosmos shapes our body down to its smallest parts. In a sense, then, we ourselves prepare and build our physical body as the summa summarum of animal life. To really understand this, we must accept a concept 
an idea most people these days don't want to think about. For example, everyone understands that a compass needle at north-south, one end pointing north and the other south, is not acting on its own, but in response to the earth as a whole being, a cosmic magnet, one end of which points south and the other north. It would be foolish to claim that powers inherent in the needle itself cause it to point in a certain direction. Yet regarding the seeds now developing in animals and humans, science and philosophy deny any cosmic influence. In other words, the very thing that would be considered utterly foolish if claimed for the compass needle is accepted as true for the development of the egg inside a hen, for example. In reality, the whole cosmos is involved in the development of that egg, and what happens here on earth merely serves to set the process in motion. But the cosmic forces imprint themselves on what is taking form in the egg. The hen herself, as is also the case for humans, is only the site in which the cosmos, indeed the whole world system, is shaping the new life. We must understand this thoroughly, because between death and rebirth we are working with higher beings, with beings of higher hierarchies, on this whole system of forces permeating the cosmos. In other words, between death and rebirth we are never idle, but constantly at work and active spiritually. After death, the first realm we come to is that of the animals. To get to know it in the right way, we have to sense the pain and suffering we are causing the beings around us when we do something wrong. Likewise, when we act in the right way, we sense the pleasure and joy everything around us takes in our actions. We are making our way through this realm by giving pleasure and joy through our actions. And finally, our soul will then reach a stage where it can descend to earth and live there harmoniously with the physical body. A soul could never descend into our physical body if it had not worked on that body itself. After the animal kingdom, we encounter the one that corresponds to the human sphere here on earth. Initially, our life after death does not include the mineral and plant kingdoms. Now, in the human realm, the dead are in a certain way, one could say, regarding the concepts we are used to, limited in their circle of acquaintances. For between death and rebirth, beginning immediately after death or shortly thereafter, we can develop relationships only with those human souls, whether still living here on earth or having already crossed the threshold of death, with whom we have had karmic connections here on earth, either in the most recent incarnation or in earlier ones. We simply pass by all other souls and don't even notice them. While we then perceive the animal world as a whole in its entirety, in the human realm we notice only those with whom we have had karmic connections here on earth. Those are the souls we get to know better and better. 
Now you must not think that we will then be connected to only a small number of souls. After all, we have already passed through many incarnations, and in each we have entered into numerous karmic relationships from which our network of connections after death is made up. The only human souls not included in our circle of relationships are those with whom we have never become acquainted. This shows you how absolutely important our life on earth is for us in the cosmic context. If we did not go through life on earth, we would not be able to enter into relationships with other human souls in the spiritual world. Those karmic relationships have their beginning here on earth and then continue in the period between death and rebirth, and when you are able to look into that world, you'll see that the so-called dead gradually enter into more and more relationships based on such karmic connections begun here on earth. As we've said, in the first kingdom, the so-called dead encounter, any animal kingdom, everything they do, even their smallest actions, will evoke a response of pleasure or pain in their surroundings. However, in the next realm, the human one, the dead are much more closely connected to others on the level of the soul and experience the other's soul intimately as though they were part of it. That is, after death we get to know other souls so closely that we feel as if we were part of them. We know them as we know our own fingers, head or ears here on earth, and we feel ourselves one with them. Our relationships after death are thus much closer than is possible during life on earth. Accordingly, after death, we have two basic experiences in regard to other souls. We are either part of them or outside them, and this applies also to souls we already know. Meeting other souls after death always leads to feeling one with them, part of them, and souls toward which we do not feel this we don't even notice at all, much as we see something when we look at it and don't see it when we look away. Similarly after death, when we pay attention to other human souls, we are part of them, and we feel ourselves outside of souls we don't pay attention to. What I've just explained gives you the basic outline of how souls relate to each other between death and rebirth. In their relationships with the beings of the other hierarchies, the angels, archangels, and so on, the dead are similarly either part of them or outside them. But the higher a hierarchy is, the more we feel connected to it after death and feel supported by it. We feel how powerfully it supports and upholds us. That means we feel more strongly carried by the archangels than by the angels, and yet more strongly by the archai than by the archangels, and so on. As you know, these days people think knowing and understanding the spiritual world is difficult, but they, so but they could soon overcome their difficulties if they'd learn a bit more about the mysteries of the spiritual world. This learning process really involves two things. First, we get to know the spiritual world well enough 
so that we become fully convinced of the eternal core within us. This unshakable conviction of the eternal core at the center of our being, a core that passes through many births and deaths, though still strange to many people, is really fairly easy to develop. Anyone patient enough to follow the path outlined in my book title How to Know Higher Worlds, as well as in my other writings, can arrive at this sure knowledge. But that is only one aspect of learning about the spiritual world. The second one is what we can learn from direct contact with the beings of the spiritual world, in particular with the so-called dead, and that is what I want to address today. Such direct relationships with spiritual beings are indeed possible, but they are a bit more difficult to achieve than the above described knowledge, which is really easy to attain. In contrast, interacting with individual dead souls, while not impossible, is definitely not easy, because it requires great care on the part of the one seeking such a direct relationship. To establish direct communication with the dead, we must be disciplined and have ourselves firmly in hand, for there is a very important law for communicating with the spiritual world we can formulate as follows. From the perspective of the spiritual world, the very drives and impulses we here consider base are seen as expressions of a higher life. As a result, directly interacting with the so-called dead can arouse our baser instincts and drives if we are not sufficiently disciplined. As long as we are dealing with the spiritual world in general, while learning about our immortality, as long as this is how we encounter the soul-spiritual sphere, there is no possibility for anything impure to emerge. However, as soon as we are in contact with specific dead souls, there is always a relationship between the individual dead soul and our blood and nervous system, strange as that sounds. In other words, the dead live, so to speak, in the drives and instincts that are found in the blood and nervous system and that can awaken our baser instincts. This poses a danger only for those who have not purified themselves through self-discipline. This point must be emphasized because it is the reason why the Old Testament practically forbids any contact with the dead. That prohibition was instituted not because it was considered a sin to communicate with the dead if the contact is maintained in the right way, but for the reason I've, just, I've explained just now. Of course, we can ignore the methods of modern spiritism in this context. Essentially, it is not a sin to maintain spiritual contact with the dead. But when our thoughts in our interactions with the dead are not pure and soulful, then our baser passions can easily be incited. These passions are not fired up by the dead, but by the element in which they live. After all, what we regard as belonging to the animal kingdom here is the basic element in which the dead live in the spiritual world.
And when this realm of the dead spills into us, so to speak, it can easily turn and become base in us, even though in the spiritual world it is actually a higher realm. It is very important to keep this in mind, and it must be pointed out when we are talking about communicating with the so-called dead, because it is an occult fact. Talking about contact with the so-called dead also allows us to describe properly what the spiritual world is like. For what we experience in our contact with the dead shows clearly how different the spiritual world is from the physical one here. To begin with, I would like to tell you something that will seem irrelevant to those who have not yet fully developed their clairvoyance. But if we think about it, we will find it is very relevant because it is connected with real life. Once we have developed clairvoyance and are communicating with the dead in the right way, we will see why people generally know so little about the dead, know so little based on direct perception. Strange and even grotesque as it sounds, to communicate with the dead in the right way, we must completely reverse the way we usually interact with others here on earth. For example, when you talk face to face with someone, you are the one speaking. You know that you are talking, that the words are coming out of your mouth. When the other person replies or speaks to you, you know that the words are coming from that person, out of that person's mouth. However, when we are communicating with the dead, this is all completely reversed. Everything is the other way around when we are communicating with the dead. That is, when we are communicating with a dead person, we hear our words coming from his or her mouth, as though the dead person were saying them. This is because the dead person inspires the words in our soul, and when he or she speaks to us, the words come out of our own soul. Clearly this is very different from what we are used to here on earth. Here we are used to hearing the words we say come from us. But in communicating with the dead, we have to get used to hearing our words coming from them, and their words coming from our own soul. Such an abstract explanation of the matter is, of course, easy to understand. But to really get used to this kind of reversed communication is tremendously difficult. And strange as it sounds, it is largely because we are not used to this reversal that we don't perceive the presence of the dead, even though they are always there, always with us. Generally, we think that everything emerging from our soul originates with us. We don't bother to ask whether something we believe to come from within us actually came to us as an inspiration from the spiritual world around us. On the whole, we prefer to interpret everything in the context we're familiar with, namely our physical world. If we receive something from outside, we attribute it to another person, and we could not be more wrong. This is just one of the peculiarities of communicating with the so-called dead. And the one thing I want you to remember above all is that in the spiritual world, everything is the other way around from what we are used to here on earth. We have to turn everything around.
Once you realize this, you will have an important insight necessary for understanding the spiritual world, an insight that is, nonetheless, extremely difficult to apply concretely in any individual case. For example, this concept of a complete reversal is also important for properly understanding the physical world, permeated, as it is, everywhere by the spiritual. It is because science and the popular mind lack this concept that we do not have a spiritual understanding of the physical world, and this lack is particularly obvious when people try very hard to understand the world. Sometimes one just has to disregard such futile efforts. For example, a few years ago, starting from certain Goethean ideas, I talked about the outer human physical organism to a large number of our friends at a general meeting in Berlin. I tried to explain that to understand the physical shape of the head, we must see it as a complete reversal of the rest of the body. Nobody understood what I was talking about, namely that a bone from our arms would have to be turned inside out like a glove in order to turn into a skull bone. Granted, this is difficult to comprehend, but we cannot really know anything about anatomy unless we develop such ideas. I am mentioning this only as an example, in passing. It may help you understand what I have told you today about communicating with the dead. You see, what I have just explained is always going on. Everyone is continuously communicating with the dead, including all of you as you are sitting here listening to me. People generally don't know about this because the communication with the dead happens in the subconscious mind. After all, our clairvoyant consciousness does not magically create something new. It only brings to our awareness what already exists in the spiritual world, namely the fact that we are all in constant communication with the dead. Let us take a closer look at how this communication with the dead usually happens. For example, you may want to know how you can be connected to someone who has passed away, so that he or she will feel you within himself or herself. That is exactly what I was talking about earlier. How can the dead be in such close contact with us again that we can live in them? That is essentially the question we are addressing here and we cannot answer it at all merely on the basis of the terms and concepts we are used to in the physical world. In our physical life we cultivate our ordinary awareness only during the hours between waking up and falling asleep. But for our whole being, the other part of our consciousness that usually remains dull and dim in the period between falling asleep and waking up is just as important as our waking consciousness. Of course, when we are asleep, we are not actually unconscious in the strict sense of the term. Rather, our consciousness is then simply so dull and dim that we do not perceive anything. Nevertheless, we have to consider the whole person, both waking and sleeping, when we are looking at our relationship to the spiritual world. For instance, when you sum up the course of your life, you usually omit the times when your life was interrupted by sleep and describe only what happens 
in the hours between waking up and going to sleep again. In other words, we see our life as defined by rhythmic interruptions as waking and sleeping phases alternate. But we're still here when we're asleep, and if we want to understand our whole being, we have to take into account both the waking and the sleeping states. When we're examining our communication with the spiritual world, however, we must consider yet another, a third thing in addition to waking and sleeping. The third condition is even more important for our contact with the spiritual world than the other two. What I am talking about here is waking up and falling asleep, both of which take place in only a short moment as we make the transition to being awake or asleep, respectively. Though though these moments of transition are only short, they can reveal much about the spiritual world if we become sensitive to them. About waking up, people in rural areas used to say, it's all changing now, but those of us older folks will remember this from our youth, that one should not right away look at the light streaming in through the window, but rather first remain in the dark for a moment longer. You see, country people still knew all about communicating with the spiritual world, and they did not want to come suddenly into the bright light of day in the first moment of awakening. Instead, they wanted to compose themselves so they could retain something of the vast stream that flows through the human soul in the moment of waking up. Being exposed immediately to full daylight is disturbing, and it is even worse in cities where not only the light but also the street noises, the clanging of the trolley and so on, disrupt our sleep. Indeed, our whole culture is seemingly geared to disrupting our communication with the spiritual world. I'm not saying this to disparage our material cultural life, but we have to be aware of its pitfalls. As we fall asleep, the spiritual world once again powerfully meets us, but we're soon asleep and no longer conscious of what is streaming through our soul, although there may be exceptions in certain circumstances. In any case, the moments of waking up and falling asleep are the most important for our relationships with the so-called dead and with other spiritual beings of the higher worlds. To understand what I am going to tell you about this, you will have to accept an idea that cannot really be applied to the physical world and is, for that reason, foreign to us, namely, the idea that what has passed in time and is over has not yet ended spiritually is not yet over, but still present. In the physical world we apply such a concept only to the dimension of space. For example, when you see a tree, then go away and come back later, you will still see the tree where it was before. It is still there. In the spiritual world the same applies to the dimension of time. That is, what we experience in one moment is gone the next as far as our physical awareness is concerned, but Spiritually, it has not passed away yet, and we can look back at it just as here we can look back at a tree and still find it in its place. Interestingly, Richard Wagner knew this, as we can tell from his words, Time here becomes space. It is one of the mysteries of the spiritual world that there we find dimensions that are absent from the physical world, 
For example, an event in the past is merely farther away from us. Please keep this in mind, particularly as you listen to what follows. It's important to remember that while we live here in our physical body, the moment of falling asleep is completely over and past when we are waking up. But when we wake up in the spiritual world, we are only just a little bit farther away from the moment when we fell asleep. Both when we're falling asleep and when we're waking up, we encounter the dead. As I said, we always have such encounters but are not usually but excuse me, but are usually not aware of them. As far as our ordinary awareness is concerned, waking up and falling asleep are two essentially different moments. But for our spiritual consciousness, the one is only a small distance removed from the other and not immediately adjacent. It's important to keep this in mind so you can understand what I'm going to talk about next. As I said, waking up and falling asleep are especially important moments in our contact with the dead, and in fact the dead are always present in those moments in our life. That is, every time we wake up or fall asleep, we are in contact with the dead. The moment of falling asleep is especially suited for addressing the dead. Thus, if we have a question for the dead, we can hold it or anything else we want to say to the dead in our soul until we are about to fall asleep. That is the most auspicious moment for presenting our questions and concerns to the dead. And it is easiest then, though we can, of course, also approach the dead at other times. For example, we can contact the dead by reading aloud to them. But for direct communication it is best when we present to them what we want to say at the moment of falling asleep. That's my view at any rate. In contrast, for what the dead have to say to us, the moment of waking up is the most auspicious, and indeed every one of us, without exception, receives numerous messages from the dead in the moment of awakening. We're just not aware of them. In fact, in the unconscious realm of our soul, we are continuously talking with the dead, asking them questions as we're falling asleep and telling them in the depths of our soul everything that's on our heart and mind. And when we're waking up, the dead are speaking to us, answering our questions and concerns. What we have to keep in mind here is that these are simply two different points, and that what happens consecutively on earth is, in a higher sense, actually taking place at one and the same time. Just as here two different locations can exist simultaneously, so in the spiritual world two moments stand next to each other, separated by only a very small distance, and one of them is more auspicious for a certain communication with the dead than the other. You may wonder how we can support and facilitate our communication with the dead. And one thing we have to realize in this regard, my dear friends, is that we cannot properly communicate with the dead if we do it on the basis of the same motives that prompt us here to speak to the living. The dead don't hear or notice such things at all. For example, if you try to speak to the dead out of the same mood that animates your tea-time conversations or chats with friends over coffee, you will find it impossible. We can ask the dead questions or tell them things 
only if we connect our feelings with our concepts or ideas. For example, if you want your subconscious in the evening to convey a message to someone who has passed through the portal of death, you can prepare your message during the day. Let's say you begin your preparation at noon. Then, when you go to bed at ten o'clock at night, your message will reach the dead soul as you're falling asleep, and you don't have to convey it consciously. It happens in your subconscious. However, you have to present your question in a certain way, namely, not only in your thinking and imagination, but also with your feelings and will. You must present your message in such a way that a warm and cordial interest develops between you. To do this, you must remember times when you lovingly interacted with that person here on earth, then approach the soul of the departed one again in that same loving way. That is, we must not approach the dead abstractly, but with sympathy and warmth. They can then be nurtured in our soul, and in the evening, by the time we are falling asleep, it has become, even without our conscious knowledge of it, a question to be asked of the dead. Alternatively, you can approach the dead soul by reviving in your soul what your special interest was in that person. This is particularly helpful if you call to mind what you shared with that person in this life here and ask yourself what most interested you in him or her, what caught your interest, what drew you to that person. Remember in what moments you felt that you were glad to have that person's opinion felt that he or she supported and encouraged you, felt glad to know that person and were deeply interested in him or her, recalling such moments of closeness and interest and turning them toward the dead as though you wanted to speak to him or her, you can then develop and formulate your question based on pure feeling and interest in the dead person. This allows your question to be nurtured in your soul until it moves over to the dead person in the evening when you are falling asleep. In our ordinary awareness, we generally don't know much about this, because very soon we are asleep, but often something of what we have conveyed to the dead remains in our dreams. As far as their content is concerned, most dreams are not true, but we often simply misinterpret most of our dreams, especially the ones about the dead. We interpret them as messages coming to us from the dead, but they are often nothing more than what lingers of the questions and other communications we have directed toward the dead. Thus we should not interpret our dreams as messages from the dead, but rather as something that originates in us and moves toward the dead. In other words, our dreams are simply the reverberation of our communication with the dead. If we had already reached a certain level of development, we could perceive a question or message we are conveying to the dead at the moment of falling asleep, and it would appear to us as though the dead were speaking to us, and that is why the communication's reverberation in our dreams seems to us to be a message from the dead, but it actually comes from within us. To understand this properly, we have to grasp our clairvoyant relationship to the dead, when a dead soul comes seems excuse me, when a dead soul seems to speak to us, what we hear is really what we've been saying to him or her, unless we've learned to make careful observations 
we cannot know this. As I said, the dead can most easily approach us when we are just waking up, and there is much, in fact, that comes to every one of us from the dead in that moment of waking up. You see, much of what we do in life is actually inspired by the dead or by beings of the higher hierarchies, even though we generally assume all these things originate from our own soul. In fact, what the dead are saying to us is coming out of our own soul, and once the moment of awakening has passed and we're up and ready to start the day, we usually aren't inclined to observe carefully what arises in our soul. And if we do pay attention to these things, we're proud to take the credit for everything that emerges from our soul. However, what lives in all this is not just what comes from our soul, but also what the dead are saying to us. What they are telling us seems to arise out of our own soul, though in reality it comes from them. If people only knew what life is really like, they would be able to develop on that basis a special reverent feeling toward the spiritual world in which we and our dead live and have our being. Then everyone would know that in much of what we do the dead are really at work within us. And in spiritual science this must not remain external theoretical knowledge but must thoroughly permeate our inner life, our soul. In other words, we must all come to know that the spiritual world surrounds us and envelops us like the air we breathe, and that the dead are always with us, though we are not able to perceive them. The dead speak to our inner being, which we usually misinterpret. If we understood our inner life correctly, we would know that it connects us with the so-called dead. Now, the dead differ greatly among each other depending on whether a particular soul passed through the portal of death at a relatively young age or does so in his or her later years. It makes a big difference whether children who loved us die or whether as young people we see our elders die. To characterize this difference based on our experiences with the spiritual world, we would have to say that when children die, the secret of being with them even after they have died, is that when we look at the matter from a spiritual perspective, we do not lose those children. They are not lost to us, but remain with us spiritually. Indeed, children who die young always remain directly present with us. In a moment we will talk about this in more detail. But for now I want to give this sentence to meditate on. Children who die are not lost to us. We have not really lost them, for they remain forever with us spiritually. The opposite is true for old people dying. They do not lose us. They do not lose us. Let me read that again. The opposite is true for old people dying. They do not lose us. We do not lose the children, and the older people do not lose us. This is because when older people die, they have a strong attraction to the spiritual world, and that gives them the power to work on the physical world in such a way that they can more easily approach and contact us. 
unlike the souls of children who remain near us after death, the souls of the older people move further away from the physical world after death. However, they have higher powers of perception than souls who died young, and that is why they can keep hold of us. Basically, then, souls of people who died in their later years live on in the spiritual world because of their power to easily enter into earthly souls. They do not lose our earthly souls. Conversely, we do not lose the souls of those who died in childhood because they stay more or less near us in our earthly human sphere. We can also describe all this in a slightly different way. You see, we don't always have strong and deep emotions in connection with our soul's experience here in the physical world. When someone dear to us dies, we feel grief and sorrow. Now, as I've often emphasized, when dear friends in our society died, it is not the task of anthroposophical spiritual science to provide easy comfort for us in our loss or to talk us out of our sorrow. On the contrary, sorrow is appropriate at those times, and we must become strong enough to bear it rather than allowing ourselves to be talked out of it. Now, our grief is usually the same whether the person who passed away was young or older. But from a spiritual perspective, there's a big difference here. We can put it like this. When children have died, who were dear to us, whether our own or others we have loved, we have a certain compassionate sorrow. Children's souls actually remain near us, and because we were linked to them in loving relationships, they stay so close to us that they transfer their sorrow into our soul. As a result, we feel their grief and sorrow at the loss of their life, and their pain lessens because we bear it with them. Actually, the children who have passed away experience their feelings within us, and that's a good thing because it lessens their sorrow. In contrast, our sorrow at the death of older people, whether of our parents or friends, is really an egotistical one. Those who die in later years do not lose us after death, and thus don't have the same feelings of grief and sorrow as those who die young. Though we may feel that we have lost those who have died in their later years, they do not lose us, but hold on to us. Our grief at their death, therefore, concerns only us, and it can thus be called an egotistical sorrow. We don't experience the feeling of the dead person's soul as we do in the case of children who have died. Rather, at the death of older people, we feel sorrow for ourselves. Indeed, we can clearly distinguish between these two kinds of sorrow, egotistical sorrow at the death of older people and compassionate sorrow at the death of younger ones. Children who have died actually live on within us and we feel what they are feeling. This means that we truly feel deep sorrow in our soul only at the death of older people, and this is not unimportant. Indeed, here we can see that knowledge of the spiritual world is very important, for we can base our rituals around death and dying on this knowledge. At the the death of children, 
rituals that emphasize individuality, the individual element, will not be appropriate. Since children will live on near to us, it is better to choose a more general memorial ritual and to focus on the more general element in the soul of the child that continues to live within us. For example, the ceremony of a burial service is preferable in such cases to a specific individualized funeral oration. I'd say the two major churches, Protestant and Catholic, each offer the best rituals for the two different situations. In the Catholic Church there is usually no funeral oration, but instead a burial service or funeral mass, that is, a traditional rite. It is something general and is the same for everyone, regardless of who the dead person was in life. And what remains the same for everyone is particularly good for children. Thus, the more we can keep the commemoration so that it can be used for anyone, the better. However, for those who have died in their later years, the individual element is much more important. In that case, the best funeral ceremony is one that includes a review of the dead person's life story. The Protestant Church provides for an individualized funeral oration about the deceased's life story as part of the memorial service, and this will be very important to his or her soul, while the Catholic funeral service would not be as meaningful or appropriate. The same applies for remembering the dead in general. For children it is best if we can adopt a sense of being closely connected to them. Then we can try to direct our thoughts to the dead child we are remembering, and those thoughts will indeed flow toward the child's soul when we are falling asleep. These thoughts can be rather general, so that they could be sent to more or less all the dead. However, to remember those who died in their later years, our thoughts must be individualized and directed to the particular person we have in mind. Those thoughts should deal with things that were important to the deceased and that we have shared with him or her. To communicate properly with souls who died in their later years, we must call to mind the person's essential being, his or her nature, and revive it in our soul. In other words, we should not just remember what that person said that was meaningful to us. Rather, we must bring to life within us that person's true nature as an individual, his or her significance and value for the world. Then we will be able to have the right relationship to and the right remembrance of a person who died in an older age. As you see, to develop the proper reverence, we have to know how to relate to the souls of those who died young and of those who died in old age. You can imagine what it means in our time, when so many young people die every day, that we can be absolutely certain that they will always be with us and are not lost to the world. I have already told you about all this from other perspectives, but spiritual things must always be considered from several vantage points. Ultimately, if we become aware of the spiritual world, we cope with the infinite sorrow of our time by calling to mind that the dead are still with us, especially those who died young. And through this connection with the dead, a vital, vibrant spiritual life can then develop, and it will come about unless materialism becomes so strong 
that Ahriman can extend his talons and subjugate all human powers. As you may imagine, many people here in the physical world will reply to what I've told you today that it is too far-fetched for them and they'd rather have instructions on what to do every morning and every evening to develop a proper relationship to the spiritual world. They are misguided, for developing thoughts about the spiritual world is essential to establishing any connection to it. The dead seem to have nothing to do with our immediate life, but when we allow thoughts like those presented here to stream through our soul, when we focus our thoughts on something that is far removed from our outer daily life, we elevate our soul and nurture and strengthen it spiritually. For what leads us into the spiritual world is not what seems obvious and right at hand, but only what comes from the spiritual world in the first place. Therefore, don't hesitate to call such thoughts to mind again and again, to let them live often in your soul. Ultimately, there is nothing more important for our life, including our material life, than to be deeply and utterly certain that we live together with the spiritual world. If this connection to the spiritual realm had not been lost to such a great extent in our epoch, we might have been spared the difficult and painful times we are going through now. At this point, only very few people understand this deeper connection, but in the future it will be widely recognized. Today people believe that once we have passed through the portal of death, our activity regarding the physical world is at an end. But no, it does not stop. On the contrary, there is a continuous, lively interaction connecting the so-called dead and the so-called living. Those who have passed through the portal of death have not ceased to be present, but our eyes can no longer see them. The dead are still with us, our thoughts, our feelings, our impulses of will. All these are closely connected with the dead. And the words of the Gospel apply particularly to those who have died, quote, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, Lo, here it is, or there, or behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Close quote. Thus we should not try to reach the dead through something external and superficial. Instead, we must become fully aware that they are continuously with us, all our historical, social, and ethical life arises out of the cooperation between the so-called dead and the so-called living. We will become particularly strong in our whole being when we are steeped not only in the certainty and grounding we have in the physical world, but also in realization that the dead are always in the midst of us, a realization we can develop out of the proper inner attitudes toward our dear departed. Indeed, this is part and parcel of any true knowledge of the spiritual world, which consists of various elements or aspects. To know the spiritual world in the right way, our way of thinking and speaking about it must come out of that spiritual world itself. The statement that the dead are in our midst in itself confirms and corroborates the spiritual world, for only the spiritual world itself can evoke in us a true awareness of the fact that the dead are in our midst. The end of Lecture 2